Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let's get started, and Carolyn's up first. Good morning. Well, good morning. I am first. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. I've got these questions that have been on my mind, and I, I, I've got them uh, written down. <laughs> I have a, Go ahead. I don't want to miss them. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've got a kefir pear tree. Okay. And I'm wondering, uh, usually it's in September or so when I, it's about four years old. Okay. Next year I got no pears. The squirrels got them all. Mm-hmm. And this year it's loaded, but they're turning kind of pink on one side. Okay. And uh, and I've never had them there. I had a friend who has a kefir and said they're supposed to be all green. Oh no, and pink be- is pink is a normal beginning of the ripening process. Um, okay. You know, pears are different from peaches and plums in that a pear will continue to ripen after it's picked from the tree. Uh, Plums and peaches, they soften, but they don't ripen, so that's why it's hard to get one that tastes like a real peach or a plum in the stores. Pears, on the other hand, once they are up to full size, I leave them on the tree as long as I conveniently can, but if the birds, the squirrels, or things like that start getting to them and you can't control those guys, pick them, put them in on the uh, kitchen windowsill, and they will continue to ripen, but that kind of a blush that it's it's sort of a reddish, oh, well, you know what it looks like, almost a, a yes, burgundy. Yes, I've got one in front of me right yeah. now, and when I when I pulled it, it just snapped right off, and that's what I had always heard, that sure. when they snap off easily, you can go ahead and pick them and put them in a box with the p- newspaper or you whatever. You can do that, you or you can put them in a sunny window. Just don't stack them mm-hmm. up. You can put them out on the table, and they will continue mm-hmm. to ripen. So what you're looking at is totally normal. Your friends probably just never left them on the tree long enough to see that. But uh, what you're looking at is totally normal for kefir, orient, any of the other hard pears we grow here, and certainly the softer pears that they can grow in areas where we don't have so much fire blight. Okay, so uh, so well, I do have something on some of them. They have some rotten spots on some of them, and some of them are malformed. But there are a lot of really good looking ones that are have this blush color on them. <laughs> well, so, you enjoy the ones that are good looking, and let the animals have the other ones. Well, I, so I can pull them off once they have this blush color. Yes, on. ma'am, anytime. Now you know they are never going to really soften the way a Bartlett or. You know, no, some of the others do, but yeah. uh, they the flavor will just continue to improve. And a lot of people like a hard pear. My grandfather used to uh, can them and, uh, you know, in glass jars, we call it canning. But my gosh, I mean, when he broke out a quart of those uh, pears that we put up the fall before, <laughs> it was just a happy day around the dinner table because there, there's so many good things, too. He used to uh, can them and then put a couple of uh, red-hot candies in there that really gave just a little bit of a bite to the flavor. You're going to find a lot of different things you can do. Uh, also had other friends that made pear chutney that we pretty much uh, enjoyed through the entire year. And uh, even back then in my much younger days, I was helping my grandfather 
grow things in the pear trees down at his farm and like always we picked them and other friends prepared them uh, along with him so uh, yeah i you're you're going to have a lot of good eating this fall oh oh good that's good uh i didn't know if they cross pollinated i've never gotten one with a blush on it but i have had the green and then it, when it snapped off i would pull them well okay. cross pollination has nothing to do has no effect oh. on this season's crop if you were to save okay. seeds from cross-pollination, then you could get some change. But uh, it doesn't matter what pollinates it, it's always going to come out the same as far as that first generation. Oh, okay. Then the next question is, uh, I wanted to plant some Pride of Barbados seeds. Uh-huh. And I wondered, uh, I, I know they have to be scarified. I had a friend give me some, a uh, friend from Bernie, but they had, had them in... Um, in storage for a long time and Mm -hmm. i I soaked them and i tried to scarify them oh my gosh that's the hardest seed (laughs) it truly is and i and yeah so so i planted them but they you know after i soaked them and all and uh, that was uh, about a couple of months ago um they just kind of never grew they never grew and when i uh, then they worked their way out of the soil and they were just empty they were nothing there was nothing in them and i don't know if when i uh, i had read on the internet that you could uh, just take a fingernail clipper and on the side of it just kind of clip it a little bit well uh, either you... either way your your seed was probably too old but um, okay. you don't have to in effect saw or cut a hole in the side of it all you have to do is break that seed is covered with a waxy coating that's Mother Nature's way of protecting it for a season or two before it germinates. But just a just a light scratch. Uh, you don't have to break through the seed coat just enough to abrade that waxy coating. I soaked them for maybe 30 minutes in some garret juice or something similar to that. And they're always a little slow to germinate. Uh, at this point, I would get some fresh seed. But unless you have a greenhouse or a place to really grow them through the winter... Save that seed and plant it about next February or so. That way you'll have nice-sized plants to set out after the danger of a freeze passes. And uh, you'll get flowers even the first season from Pride of Barbados. Just um, If you plant them this time of year, that little plant doesn't have a chance to get very well established before cold weather. And then if we should have a cold winter, they can actually freeze and die. Once they're up and established... I've had mine in Bernie for, you know, quite a few years, and they freeze down, but they come back out gangbusters bigger and better every year. Okay, that was the second thing was when, when I could plant them. I knew not to plant them, or I didn't think to plant that it would be good to plant them now because I know they yeah. die back. So, no, plant them. Okay, about February. Start them in little pots, January or February. Let them get up, let them get about six inches tall, and then plant them out in the garden wherever you want them. Okay, and then another thing I have, uh, I usually make tons of eggplant. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I use the it, it keep Ichiban, yeah, Japanese. But this year, this year, oh, I could not make eggplant. The the eggplant looked like it had been, uh, I don't know, like you see scarring on sure. something on the bottom of it, and the leaves. Uh, I I always have to treat them for those. Uh, um, what do you call them? Spider the, mites. Flea beetles, oh, no yeah. flea beetles. Okay, but uh, but I I didn't I saw flea beetle one or two earlier, and I I put the DE on him, and that takes care of them. I usually have to do it twice a year, but these leaves look terrible. They they're they're just riddled with little uh, yeah. 
It's it's the heat. Colored spots. Yeah, it's it's the heat more than anything. Fertilize them. If we cool off, if we have our normal couple of cooler months before freezing weather hits, you can still get some good eggplant this fall. I made good eggplant for about three weeks this spring, and then it got really hot. And I'm kind of like you. My plants have just kind of struggled through the summer, but uh, there still is a good chance of getting a good crop, but I'd be feeding them every couple of weeks with Hastagrow or a similar, similar fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And um, I tell you, the DE is okay, but there's a new product out there called Spinosad Soap, and it's a combination of insecticidal soap and Spinosad, and that is just the most effective thing I have found. It gets mealybugs, it gets beetles, it gets spider mites. Uh, it's sort of become my go-to uh, insecticide for those little nuisances that show up in the garden. But uh, keep feeding your eggplant. If we have a typical fall, you still have a chance to get some uh, good fruit before uh, before things freeze this winter. Yeah, I do see some on there that are just starting, yeah. and, and the leaves look pretty good. So my problem in this Dallas-Fort Worth area is getting the spinosad soap. That's, sure. That's the problem. Well, here. it's by Natural but, Guard, and uh, your nurseries can get it. You've got a wholesale distributor up there called Adams Supply, and they are the same ones, uh, the home offices of Adams are here in San Antonio, and uh, that's where we buy ours. So tell your nurseryman, talk to Adams, and they'll have them the next day. Really? Adams Supply? Talk yep. to the nursery and they'd have... Tell, uh, tell, you, tell your nursery to talk to Adams Supply, and I'm sure they have it in the warehouse. Okay, that's it. And, and, well, wait a minute. I've got an armadillo been digging for two months they always come in july and all of august how how uh i've I've found a place underneath the wooden fence i blocked up everything that i thought i blocked up and then yesterday i found a uh oh and when i got up he had rototilled my whole garden well and um if you know where he's coming in it's real easy just get a live trap and set it at that point i did i did but he didn't go in that trap last night and I see where there's another place that he dug, and I wanted to know how how small a space or flat a place can they flatten out because they have such a hard shell. Do they need a big hole to get through, or can they get through a small area? Um, it depends on how you define small. I would say they need at least a four inch. You know, if they if they mm-hmm. have four inches between the fence and the ground, uh, they will go under. But they are very very good diggers. Um, here's what you do if you're not real sure you know the general area they're coming under the fence, but uh, take two boards, two-by-fours or two-by-sixes, either one, and stand them up on edge and make kind of a V-shape. Put one end of the board against the fence, draw the two long ends together, and set your trap right between them because if that armadillo comes under the fence anywhere along there, they're just not... I mean, they're on the low end of the IQ scale of all the animals in the world. And if they'll walk up, they walk up to that board and they're too stupid to go over it. They will turn and walk right along that board and walk walk right into your trap. That way you don't have to have the trap at the exact point. But let's say you had a couple of 12-foot 2x4s or 2x6s. You could spread those things out 10 feet wide and then just, or actually more than that, probably 20 feet wide, and just kind of bring them together in a V, set your trap right at the apex of that V, and um, you ought to get them tonight. 
Well, I'll try that. I it, it just didn't get in. I set the trap right where the hole was, and I put bricks around it so that it couldn't get to the side of the trap. Well, and, it uh, apparently it, has a second spot that it's uh, it's doing, but keep after it. You'll catch them eventually. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, okay, Carolyn. Thank you. It's my Thanks pleasure. A lot for everything. Bye-bye. You're welcome. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, it's going to be Tony, Barb, and Cindy. Good morning, Tony. Hi, this is my first time caller. I appreciate that. Uh, I'd like to ask you, um, where is your business located at? Is it here in Bear County? It's in uh, San Antonio. Uh, We're just a few blocks from the quarry, just a few blocks from the airport, if that gives you a general part of town. Uh, We are actually on Sunset Road which is the first major east-west street inside of Loop 410. Sunset Road runs between North New Braunfels Avenue and Jones-Maltzberger Avenue. And we're kind of right in the middle where there's a big Home Depot right there where 281 oh, goes okay. over. And we're about three blocks down, or t- about uh, actually a block down on the opposite side of the street. Okay, and what's the name of your business? It's called Shades of Green. Okay, okay. Also... What is your, your uh, experience in education contrast to Henry Geller? I'm sorry, contrasting to what? Contrast your background, your experience, and your education in contrast to your competitor, what's his name, Henry Geller? Oh, 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 uh, I'm not sure who you're speaking doctor, of. Basically, I... I you're, you're oh, Howard Garrett. Yeah, Howard Garrett. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What is your what is your uh, education and your experience compared with Henry? Well, there we're a little different. I started working in my grandfather's greenhouse when I was about five years old. Um, went to uh, uh, did graduate and undergraduate uh, work at SMU. My degrees are in biology. I was a research biologist by training and just uh, decided the politics of the university system weren't for me. So. Uh, Went back into the plant business and have been doing it most of my life, but I wouldn't trade my teaching experience. I went to graduate school on a teaching fellowship, so uh, I just kind of teach to a larger audience these days. Howard, on the other hand, um, Howard is a landscape architect by training. Uh, he got his college degree at uh, Texas Tech University. He has been uh, doing things related to organics uh, and plants. He's written quite a number of books. Uh, his radio show is syndicated. He's on all over the United States on his show. So my training is a little more technical. My experience is in the retail business as well as, well, I've done a lot of things. I worked uh, with a gentleman. We had a grass farm for a while. I used to be a propagating supervisor for a nursery up in Dallas where I was responsible for about two million plants a year. So I've had a lot more hands-on experience, but I'm not the skilled writer. And I, you know, again, my radio show is not syndicated at this point. So Howard and I share the similar interest in organics, but uh, our backgrounds are somewhat different. He's an ex-Marine and uh, uh, did his service for the country. And uh, we just, you know, we're just different guys, <laughs> but we both have the same uh, same passion for uh love of plants and helping people live uh, organically and stay away from all the toxic stuff. Okay. Um, also, change the narrative. Um, some weeks ago, um, your colleague who has the afternoon show, what's his name? I can't remember. 
Um, and he comes on the air at 4 o'clock um, on Friday. Here on KTSA? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, that late probably is, uh, oh gosh, what, uh, Mike uh, and his daughter, they do, uh, the What's It Worth show, is that the one we're speaking no, of? No, 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 Monday through Friday. Oh, Monday through Friday, that's, uh, um, uh, <laughs> Jack Riccardi, Jack Riccardi yes, does, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, uh, he opened a show, he spent 20 minutes on this show, he talked about, the wandering Jew that was mm-hmm. a plant. Right. And he talked about it and sounded anti Semitic. It sounded he was just concerned. What you, what is that? What is a wandering Jew plant? What is that? Well, there are about twenty different plants that go by the name of wandering Jew. They are um they are all not really vining plants, but spreading plants. Uh the genus Tradescanthia, T R A D E S C A N T I A is the principal genus, but there are also plants in the genus Rio, R-H-O-E-O. There are plants in the genus Calicia, C-A-L-L-I-S-I-A. Uh, they're pretty much all, um, oh, just colorful little plants that, uh, you know, spread out. Many of them are grown in hanging baskets. Some of them are grown in the ground. Uh, some of them can be kind of invasive. They can be hard to get rid of if you decide you don't like them. But uh, that's a problem with common names. One common name can be applied to a bunch of different plants, and in this case, the name Wandering Jew is probably applied to 20 different plants. So how many species are they? Um, they probably cover about four different genera. Genera, of course, plural of genus, about four different uh, types of genus, and then within each one of those uh Genera, they're probably from 5 to 15 different species. So I guess technically they're probably 25, 30 species of plants that are commonly called wandering Jew. Okay, okay. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. Hey, you're certainly welcome, Tony. I appreciate the call and uh, call any time. Good morning, Barb. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm preparing my uh, vegetable garden for planting put compost over the ground and I want to say do you just put it on or do you dig it in I'm sorry do you just put it where now the lava sand do you just put it on top after I di- after I dig the compost in either way in fact I just leave the compost on the surface I figure I will oh. you know work a little bit of it in as I plant and of course things oh. where I'm planting seed in rows um, you can work it in if you want to, but here's the downside is anytime you start disturbing that soil, you may be bringing up weed seeds that have been buried and couldn't germinate for 20 years. You work that soil and get them up on the surface, and the uh, uh, fastest way to have a weed problem is to till a garden. So <laughs> I'm I'm much more into no-till myself. I will put down fertilizer, put down some lava sand, put down some compost on top of it, and then just basically plant through that as I'm planting the individual areas. Like I say, if I'm planting, oh, let's say lettuce, or if I'm planting snow peas or something like that, I'm going to, you know, pull a little furrow and put my seed in that. If I'm planting broccoli or cauliflower, I'm going to be planting those as little plants. So um, I don't, I don't worry too much about working it in. It just sort of naturally gets blended in. And uh, compost, of course, does many things. Even the part of it that stays on the surface is going to leach through the humic acids and all sorts of things through the watering process. So don't break your back, uh, you know, out there turning the soil over. You don't really have to do that. 
Hey, that's the best advice I've ever gotten. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Maybe the best advice today that you've sorry, ever gotten. Sorry. Because I feel like I'm breaking my back when I'm turning it over. Uh, you probably are not doing your back a lot of good, but uh, anyway. Oh, no, it's that's just that's, right. that's an unnecessary labor. Oh, good. Um, a friend of mine gave me some peppers that she grew from hybrid seed. Can I plant the seed she uh, that I saved from her peppers? You can always plant the seed, but there is no guarantee that they will look like the peppers they came from. Um, in fact, with hybrid seeds, even if they're self-pollinated, you can still get a wide range. I need to do a seminar on genetics sometime just to be able to show you on a blackboard. I can't can't do it on the radio, but uh, um, if we have a plant where the same plant has been self-pollinated and the seed grown from that year after year after year, you've got the genetics stabilized to the point that uh, those seed will come true. It's what we refer to as an open pollinated variety. But where you have, uh, and it's misleading, uh, they talk about hybrid plants. They should say modern hybrids, or they should somehow clarify that, because technically every plant that grows from a seed is a hybrid of some sort. But when you get these relatively recently developed strains, varieties of plants, uh, they are not genetically stable, and the offspring from them can vary widely. And that's not a bad thing. That's the only way we ever get anything new or better or different. But uh, what I always tell people is, you know, probably a fourth of the plants are going to look like the parents. A fourth of the plants are going to be worse. Uh, A fourth of the plants are going to be better. And everything else is going to be somewhere in between. So you will get peppers, but it's um, you may get quite a range of things. Some of them better and some of them not as good as the parents. Just be fine. Uh, compost pile. I make sourdough bread, and if I put some of the water left over from the sourdough starter, is that okay? Oh, absolutely. Or is it even beneficial? Absolutely, it's yeah. Pile? It's, uh, you know, sourdough is uh, basically, I think it's an ascomycete related to yeast and things. And uh, yes, that actually does have some benefit in the compost pile. Oh, great, great. Okay, well, that takes care of me today. Thank you, And yeah, you're making me hungry thinking about sourdough pancakes and all those other wonderful things you can do. Barb, get out and enjoy this day and have a good Labor Day. Thank you. You (laughs) Thank you. Bye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Cindy. Good morning, Cindy. Hi, honey. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm crazy as usual. I've taken a few months to get my courage to call you because I've got several questions. But one I wanted to know, do you remember the name of the book? And the young man you talked to you about Roundup who who had, go, had gone um, to another state or something and met with people who recommended a book for you? Um, I don't recall. You know, I how radioactive things can be broken down and not radioactive anymore? Um, Howard Garrett is the one that was talking about that. I'm not familiar. I suspect it's more of a scientific paper than a book, but you well, would... I said it was a book and he recommended it. Anyway, that's, that's okay. Um, anyway, and then, and the name of the nursery organic friend that can come out and look at a yard and tell a person what to do? Uh, that is uh, his company. He doesn't have a nursery, but he has a service. And it's called uh-huh. Green Grow Organics. 
Okay, Green His Grow name Organics. is Sam, Sam Sitterly, but Green Grow Organics okay. is um, uh, okay. the fellow you're speaking of. Yeah, I know. I remember the young man said that he called you the guru of greenery. <laughs> Sam's been at it a long time. He's uh, he's very good at what he does, and he's 100% organic. Yeah, well, I've had a strange problem with um, my yard. I live in Kirby, and I've lived here 32 years. Uh-huh. And I had a, I had a, it rained in my house with the shingles off. I had an insurance claim, and I noticed little worms around the uh, baseboards. And so I started looking into it and pulling worms out. I started taking sheetrock out because we had to, had to replace sheetrock anyway. And I found long worms in the sheetrock. I found a worm hanging off the windowsill, one, hang, one hanging out of the sheetrock. And I'm like, oh, my God. And the, there was, like, little trails made in the sheetrock. In the yard, it's it's gone. It's developed more and more. To where all all the sheetrock in the house is bad out, and it's developed more and more. To where in the yard, I've noticed that um, there's like been small white worms on on the grass, and then then in the grass is long white worms, and then they're even they're getting into uh, furniture, um, clothing, uh, the refrigerator, uh, my car, and um, I've, I've they look like flatworms to me, but. Um, Right now, I have a whole family in my couch, and I'm going to try to find maybe a university or someone who wants to research them. But um, I now what they're doing is um, they're ruining. I'm trying to sell the house and move, but for me to leave the house, I've just lost a lot of property, and um, I'm losing more all the time because this oil and the eating of the stuff they do has had me throw clothes away and everything. Well, there there are tens of thousands. What you're calling worms are probably actually caterpillars. And there are thousands and thousands of different kinds of caterpillars, and uh, they all turn into one kind of a moth or a butterfly, something or other. But again, thousands of different ones. There are some things that look like worms that are actually the larvae of beetles, and there are over a hundred thousand different kind of beetles. So, um, yeah, that's what I suspected. That my sister said in uh, Kirby that she suspected uh, the carpet beetle was eating. Her house, and I well, know there, I, the I, person you need food. to talk to is a good exterminator. Uh, your exterminators know more about uh, the different kinds of beetles and worms, and they know how to safely control them. Um, there are several companies out there that you know have organic ways of controlling them. Uh, ABC Pest Control does, Apple Pest Control, both of those companies have organic programs, which is what I would always choose, but. You need an exterminator if you've got problems that are that severe because they are trained, and that's what they do every day is take care of that kind of problem. Yeah, I suspect it, as I asked about your friend that, that um, does the organic, because I suspect it, there's a fungus in the yard and in the house. But what they're doing now, they're, um, they're, they're leaving a layer of oil on the kitchen cabinets and in the bathroom that is so thick and getting thicker. I did buy my own um, termite um, poison, at a local nursery, I mean, a local feed store, and I did hand spray it myself for a while, And um, but I had three people come and they said, no, it wasn't termites, so they couldn't tell me what it was. Yeah, well, call an exterminator. Uh, many of them will will come out and give you an estimate at no charge and tell you what kind of problems you're looking at, but there are thousands and thousands of different kinds of beetles and caterpillars and moths and things like that and uh 
I'm not trained or qualified to be able to identify all of them. Oh, and I know that, honey. I'm, I'm not asking you to identify yeah. them, but, but what I'm, I, am, I was asking you for is, do you know what process in biology would be that these things would be creating an oil? Um, you know, if you wanted to learn about them, it would be, the class would be entomology, which is basically the study of insects. But, um, yeah, I've been researching everything for years now, trying to figure out, I've studied every, every different kind of things, and I'm, I'm, I've had to go to Harvard and Oxford, and <laughs> I, I even looked up a vibrational communication among sure. insects. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going everywhere in biology, and my, my well, cousin is a marine biologist and, and a professor, but yeah. I haven't asked him yet. Enti- entomology so is, try that. Yeah, entomology is uh, what you want to study. All right, back to the gardening, and uh, let me take just one second here before I go back to the phone calls to remind you that a week from Friday, September the 13th, uh, there's this big clay shoot that uh, takes place out at the... Uh, National Shooting Sports Complex, and uh, it's to benefit Operation Game Thief, a really good program of Texas uh, Department of Parks and Wildlife. And uh, the thing about Operation Game Thief is it is funded 100% by private donations and things like that. And this, uh, they call it the Alamo Area Clay Stopper Shootout. This is a big fundraiser for them. Plus, just one heck of a lot of fun. I don't have time to tell you all about it, but uh, you can, I'm going to give you a website and a phone number. You can go to uh, www.ogttx, is an Operation Game Thief in Texas, and uh, OGTTX. You can also call area code 512-389-82, I'm sorry, 389-8801. Uh, it's a neat deal. It takes place uh, Friday, September 13th, um, and a lot of fun. Go read all about it. It's a great, great program, uh, <laughs> great opportunity to support uh, game management here in Texas. All right, back to the phone lines. It's uh, Donna, Darla, Joyce, and Victor. Donna is first. Good morning, Donna. Good morning. Good morning. I, I was listening to you yesterday, and you spoke about pittosporums and that they are drought tolerant. And um, I just have a concern. I had. Um, a very large pittosporum die, mm-hmm. okay. and right, and it started out with just one limb where it died, and then it, you know, just took over the whole plant, and then so I cut that completely down, and uh, the one next to it, that you know, and they've been there probably twenty years or so, okay, and uh, now it's showing that same thing where one of the, one of the tiny limbs is starting to die, and so it created a lot of concern. And then I also have a miniature, I guess they'd call a miniature, forum that's yeah. doing the same thing. You know, I am not aware of a disease. I guess it is possible that it could be cottony root rot, but it's very uncommon um, I would probably dust the ground around them pretty heavily with cornmeal. I would soak some cornmeal in uh, water overnight and use that to pour around them. That takes care of just about every fungal problem um, that you know that occurs with plants. And uh, like I say, I've I've not seen it, but I guess it's possible that you could have something like cottony root rot going on. More commonly, it's physical damage. It's rats or squirrels or something in the drought chewing on the bark at the base of the plant. But uh, 
if it seems to be spreading from plant to plant, I'll make some inquiries. I've got two or three people I can call and ask if they are aware of any disease that seems to be hitting pittosporum. But like I say, I've got one outside my back door. It's probably 80 or 90 years old. Who knows how long it's been there. And uh, that's just not a problem that I've come across. But just on be on the safe side, I'd get a little package of whole ground cornmeal and uh, probably make some corn water tea. And then whatever you have left over, just sprinkle it around on the ground and water it in. Okay, so also make some corn water tea and yeah. then put it on the foliage. Yeah, well, put it on the foliage and but more importantly, pour it over the ground around the base of the plant. I don't think this is anything that is spreading from the top down. It sounds to me like it's more of a problem that's starting at the roots upward. So in this case, drenching the soil with it's going to be more important than spraying the foliage. Okay, because then the uh, limb that I broke off, it was just terribly dry. Yeah. It was just... Yeah. Well, I know a couple of big pittosporum growers. I'll call them on Tuesday or Wednesday when they're open again and ask if they are seeing any problems. It's just just not something that I've encountered recently, but um, I sure will want to find out about it. Yes, because it takes so long for some of those big ones to grow sure. as big as they are. And then in that first one that I lost, I thought, oh, gosh. Well, because look. They were, they were grouped together, and look so down at the base. Pitch. Look down okay. at the base because I looked at uh, three or four years ago. Um, I somebody that I know down in the almost basin was having a problem like that. I happened to be down that way and stopped by and looked, and they had a problem with rats coming up and literally chewing the bark off just right at ground level, and it was just spreading right down the row. Because uh, And squirrels will do the same thing. Mice will do the same thing. But apparently there's something that to rodents, the bark of uh, uh, the pittosporum tastes good. And when they chew that bark off about six months later, the plants start going downhill. It's not something that happens real recently. But do check the base of your plants for that. Uh, I hate to tell anybody they've got rats or mice, but we all do. Whether we like it or not, I got a mouse in my kitchen two days ago, a mouse in my greenhouse yesterday. So uh, they're certainly out there, and uh, with all the drought, they're eating things they don't normally go after. Well, when I cut down that first pittosporum, once Mm -hmm. it died completely, I I didn't notice anything at the base. You know, the trunk of it was, the spread of it was probably about 12 inches, it seemed like. It seemed like. Huge. Well, do the corn water tea just to be on the safe side, and I'll see if I can find out anything else that might be going on. Well, thank you very much, Bob. It is always a pleasure. You have a nice Labor Day. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. (laughs) Bye. Bye. -bye. All right. Told you we'll be right back, and Darla is up next. Good morning, Darla. Hey, good morning there. Good morning. I'm the one that called and bragged about getting five and a half inches of rain, and I'm already wanting some more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like that. They always say a Texas rancher doesn't want all the land in the world, just the land next to theirs. And exactly. uh, we always exactly. remember the last rain, but we're always looking forward to the next one, too. Yeah, that's right. Well, I have some questions for you about taking some root cuttings. I really want to root some cuttings on a white crepe myrtle that I have that's it has really perked up since this rain. I've been watering it, but the rain is what makes it go. 
I just don't know what time of the year is the best time to take cuttings. Well, you'll take cuttings from the top, not from the roots, of course. Right. You'll take cuttings from the stems. Um, when they drop their leaves in the fall is the best time, oh, uh, October, yeah. November. You want to, uh, you know, any any of the stems that have bloomed, you'll want to cut all that old dead tissue off, make your cuttings below that point, and probably the best cuttings will be on the limbs that did not bloom. But you're going to make cuttings that are about four to five to six inches long. Uh, soak them in liquid seaweed or maybe just a little bit of garret juice briefly and root them in perlite. Still the best thing I know of to root in. I used to... Not what, mud light, huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, good sense of humor there. No, not mud light, perlite. <laughs> but P-E-R-L-I-T-E. But the nice thing about it, uh, you know, we used to root in metal trays and would put two, three, four hundred cuttings in a tray. If you're rooting, let's say you take a five-gallon or a you know 10-inch pot Fill that with perlite. You can put 20, 30 cuttings in there, and you'll have about 50 or 60% of them root. But take those cuttings normally uh, October, November, December. Protect them from freezing, but still leave them out where it's chilly. Don't bring them in where it's too warm. And water them frequently. Perlite is such an open material, you never have to worry about keeping it too wet. Your commercial... Uh, propagators, they may have them on mist tables where they get watered 10 times a day. So uh, just uh, protect from freezing, keep in a, in a sheltered area. Uh, it, uh, if you take your cuttings October, November, they'll generally be rooted by February or March, at which time you'll put them in small pots for a while and then give them to friends or plant them out other places in the yard. Well, I want them all. I have one other question for you about reading uh, a Mexican olive. I have a huge tree uh-huh. that is probably 30 or more years old, and it has a lot of branches that touch the ground. Mm-hmm. And I would love to be able to uh, root one of those branches in the dirt, in the ground, and uh, I can't remember exactly how you say to do that. You know, I'm I'm not sure. Most of them are propagated from seed, but you can certainly try it. It's what we call layering. And what you would do is take your knife and just uh, cut a just cut the bark off, maybe a four or five inch long section, just on the bottom side of the branch. Just sort of cut and peel, not all the way around, but just on the bottom, and then bend a piece of a coat hanger or you know some kind of wire that you can, in effect, pin it to the ground, make like a giant bobby pin out of it, pin it down to the ground, and put a shovelful or two of garden soil on top of it. And uh, many times, uh, this is this used to be the most common way that nurserymen rooted uh, plants, new plants to start, and it's called layering, just not air layering. That's what we do up above uh-huh. the ground, but layering. I've never tried it on Mexican olive, but uh, it would be... Well, uh, I just have a feeling it might work. Yeah, I'd they, give it a try. Do it sometime this... Wet. Yeah, do it this fall and uh, check it about uh-huh. next April or May, and uh, you most likely have a good rooted new plant to set out somewhere. I love that plant, and too. Just, and then I would just cut it off behind that yeah. rooting. Yeah, yeah. You just It's sort of a pre, pre-rooted cutting, kind of the way we do air layers in the summer months. Mm-hmm. Well, I have some little babies coming up from the seeds around yeah. the bottom of it that I'll dig and, and uh, put in pots until I can 
we grow them a while and plant them out again. We're going to have Darla's uh, roadside nursery and fruit stand down there. <laughs> yeah, well, I used to have a nursery. That's why I'm such an idiot about it all. Well, yeah, I had a nursery for 14 years it's... here in, in Freer. All <laughs> organic, too. <laughs> I'm always glad to hear that. Well, good luck with your project, and let me know how it works. I will. I sure will. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Darla. Have a great, great <laughs> you, weekend. You do, too. Bye. All right, going to be Joyce and Victor. Joyce is up next. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning. How are you today? I'm very well, and I was calling to say, yes, I certainly was listening yesterday, and thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. The other thing, uh, I do have a question or two for you, and that is, I I popped one of those little frizzle sizzles out of its pot, Uh and the bottom third is one solid root. Right. It it what should I, how far up should I go? Uh, well, if you got, you got one of those ones that's in a little two inch pot, yes, probably go to a four inch pot. Okay, because the little sign that they stick in there mm-hmm. with it shows this thing as being I, I can't tell because you don't have perspective, but it looks like a big plant. Does it? Uh, how big does it uh, eventually turn into? You know, a year ago I had never seen frizzle sizzle before, so I can't. I can't say that I have ever seen a really big one. The biggest ones that I have seen have been in one-gallon containers, and they were probably uh, 10 to 12 inches wide and 10 to 12 inches tall. Okay. I, I, it's just hard to tell from that little picture. Yeah. Oh, no. no perspective. Some of them look like, as you say, it was maybe a, a foot tall. Yeah. But the one they show look, has a big bloom on it that looks almost like a yucca, and that plant looks like it was three feet tall. That's why I couldn't I, it, tell. It may be. I uh, have gone and looked at a couple of my old references that I use to research such things, and apparently it's obviously it's been around for a long time, but it's relatively new to cultivation. So uh, we'll keep looking, but all I can tell you is my experience, which is very limited, so we'll learn together on this one. Yeah, it, it's just a fun thing uh, to do. The other thing I wanted to ask you, I bought, uh, when I was at uh, Shades of Green, a cactus that had a lot of blooms around it on uh-huh. the outside. Okay. <laughs> and it, sure enough, it started blooming for me, And but it just says cactus. And it's one, I can describe it to you because I have a little one mm-hmm. that looks the same way that's called a noto cactus. It has very tiny little spines that are flat. You can literally pick this plant up without ever getting stuck. Okay. Does that ring any bells with you? Does it have, is it like, uh, oh, kind of bumpy, like little protuberances all over it where the flowers come out? Or the cactus itself, is it... Uh, Relatively smooth, or is it um, almost like little projections all over it? Well, what it what it is is this thing is about four and a half inches round. It's segmented top to bottom, and up and down the segments are little dots, and each little dot has a little radiation of spines that are perfectly horizontal, which makes it n- none of them stick up. You can literally pick up this cactus without ever getting a spine on it. Mm. And the blooms are in a circle around the outer rim of the size of the cactus. And it's just an, it's a fairly large bloom, like two inches, something like that. It, they were out and back and just say cactus. And my question, I guess, was, I don't particularly care about knowing exactly what it is, but it's cold hardiness because the little one that looks exactly the same but's never bloomed, uh, the writing on it says hardy to 32 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, spiny cacti, uh, true cacti, not euphorbias, which, you know, a lot of people confuse cacti and euphorbias, but um, true cacti that have spines are normally cold-hardy, at least down into the 20s. Um, I, it's just not really ringing a bell. Um, usually the ones that have just many, many flowers are in the genus Mammillaria. Mm-hmm. But uh, this doesn't sound like a mammillary. It sounds more like uh, one of, uh, oh, golly, I'm trying to, there's one they call a bishop's cap or something similar to that. I have a question, please, about uh, my little dwarf banana tree. It's uh-huh. about a little more than 12 inches tall. It did not freeze. I protected it all, all the winter. It was in the house, and it went out and was fine. And then the leaves started darkening from the bottom up, and it looks like it wants to uh, finish its life cycle and die. But it didn't bloom, and it didn't freeze. It's putting out a small plant beside it, and yet the whole stalk and the stem and whatever, it all seems firm. So I don't mm-hmm. know why the leaves are darkening. Um, and are they getting brown and crispy, or are they just getting more highly pigmented? No, they're they're getting dark and crispy. They, they turn black and get crispy, but there's still a green one coming straight out of the top. Um, it may be. There's so many. The genus is Musa on bananas, and there are so many different ones. It may be that it... one from, um, a Baker Creek that's... Yeah. A very miniature that you right. buy as a clone. Yeah, I suspect it's one that just doesn't like air intense heat. Okay. Uh, be interesting to see what it does this fall. But you know, there are a lot of these things that, and and people say they like uh, different plants like it hot. But there's a difference in Texas heat and uh, <laughs> what we might call normal heat. And if that's something that's shown up mainly over the past uh, 10 to 12 weeks, I'm going to tell you it's probably just weather-related. We will know as uh, you know as we move into fall and we see what it does. But uh, some of the different bananas will start putting off the little offshoots to the side before they bloom all of them normally do after they bloom, but sometimes they'll just skip a blooming cycle, and yet we'll go ahead and put on three or four little plants around the base. So uh, keep it watered, keep it fertilized, let's protect it again from severe cold, and uh, we'll talk in six weeks or so and see how it's doing as we move into fall. I suspect it's just heat-related. Is it possible, because it's in like about a three-gallon pot, which is plenty big for it, and I've watered it a lot, and when I try to take it out of the pot, and which I'm going to do, I'm going to put it in a different pot, it seems very uh, soft, well, not soft, but root-bound wet at the bottom. Could I have watered it too much and it just got overwatered at the bottom or something? Because I'm going to put it in a new pot and see what I can do with it with new soil and water and food, and it doesn't matter because I have another baby that sure. I've already taken off last year, but well, I was just curious. The thing always to remember is that water doesn't hurt anything. Right. It, uh, you know, it's lack of oxygen. And if and something. That's what I think happened at the bottom. Well, then that, that is destructive to the roots because roots have to have oxygen. So um, it's more a matter of just for whatever reason, it hasn't drained as well as it should have. Um, if you're using a plastic nursery pot, it probably has six or eight holes in the bottom, which is yeah. good. If you're using a clay pot, I would always drill two or three extra holes in the bottom, unless you're using an orchid pot, which already has the little slits cut in the side. 
Okay, Bob, thank you very, very much. Give Heaven and all the babies an extra good hug, and thank you. <laughs> I will sure do it, Joyce. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, Victor's up next, and then it'll be Glenn and Jeff. Good morning, Victor. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm good. How about you today? I'm doing great. Great Sunday morning. Great it is, Sunday. and uh, many of us have a day off tomorrow for us in the nursery business. That's kind of a rarity, so uh, I'm enjoying Sunday and actually looking forward to Monday. And that's good. My question is, Bob, uh, I put some moss down, you know, around the base of the trees, like, like you say, mm-hmm. and I've done it here a couple of years, and I've noticed when I go to water, you know, uh, there's some bugs that come out sometimes, you know, spiders and all, ants. Right. What's a good? Is that good for the the uh, the, the mulch in the ground or in the in the trees that I'm watering? I would the, say the I would say it's typical. I don't know oh. that it's good or bad. They're just lots of little creatures. What you've mm-hmm. done is created an area that stays a little cooler and holds more moisture, and that's very good for your trees and shrubs. But, you know, a lot of those little crawly creatures, they like it a little cooler and wetter, too. So uh, I, I see the same thing, but I can't really say that it's good, bad, or indifferent. It doesn't provide any real benefit, but usually uh, those creatures aren't bad. Now, in some climates, uh, in Florida, <laughs> we're talking about Florida a lot this week, obviously, but uh, they get those big old roaches that they call palmetto bugs because they don't want to believe that a cockroach actually gets that big. And uh, in that kind of climate, yeah, you may create some of those things in the mulch, and you might want to dust with diatomaceous earth or something like that. But um, in general, unless you have fire ants decide to take up residence or unless you have some sort of undesirable creature, I wouldn't worry about it. If you have something you want to get rid of, just good old dry diatomaceous earth will take care of it very quickly and very safely. Okay. Well, that's my question for today, and thank you for your show, sir, and your time that you spend with us. Well, it is my pleasure. Thank you for calling me. I'm always here, and I always appreciate the call, Victor, and you enjoy your Labor Day, too. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye. All right, uh, let's see here. Glenn, Jeff, and Charlene. That's the order my next three callers are. Glenn is next. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. Morning. I have a question. I've got a property in the Delview area, which is I-10-410, right. that doesn't grow any grass. Is there something I could do to the soil to try and get something started? Either grow, uh, uh, rye grass or something? They're, um, you know, normally if there are not even any weedy grasses growing, it is most commonly an issue for lack of water. Hopefully no one has ever used any. There, there are a few weed killers, but most of those don't even kill grass. So uh, the things that I would work on, I'd first, you know, take care of the irrigation issue, uh, be sure that you are able to water Uh, Beyond that, a little bit of organic fertilizer. I don't really recommend putting compost down before you plant grass. Now, once your grass is up and growing, putting a little bit of compost down is an excellent thing to do. But at this point, um, any organic fertilizer will help. Molasses, either liquid or dry, will help to open that soil up. Medina makes a product which is called Soil Activator, and then they make another one called Medina Plus. It's just Soil Activator with some uh, extra seaweed added. 
Uh, any soil will benefit from having that sprayed over it, you know, every four to eight weeks. But uh, you're a little early for your rye grasses. We're probably about 45 days away from the weather really being cool enough for your rye grasses to germinate and grow well. But that gives you a good opportunity to uh, put down some molasses or spray with some molasses, use some of the Medina soil activator, and uh, just be certain that you're going to be able to water regularly. And your soil should be in wonderful shape by middle of October, which is typically when it's cooled down enough for the rye grasses. And uh, by that time, we can get you started and have a beautiful green lawn all winter long. Okay. I mean, I, I, this this is a rental property, so right. trying to get uh, watered on a regular basis is difficult. But, I mean, it literally, there's a little bit of, junk grass along the uh sidewalk and mm-hmm. a little bit in the backyard but literally the ground is bare yeah well that's you know when we go for 10 weeks without rain which is basically what most of us have um and you know we we, we seem to go from alternately having a fair amount of moisture to having no moisture at all just the only way you're you're really going to keep uh, anything green growing is to get somebody to water it. And, um, you know, I don't know what, tell them you give them a, a $30 a month water allowance or something like that. So they're not feeling like, well, I don't want to pay that water bill. But uh, you, there's, there's just Bermuda grass, of course, is our most drought tolerant grass. But it's going to brown out on you if it doesn't get water. So, uh um, the, the water issue we need to address one way or the other because nothing's going to grow without that. But, um, the easiest thing, of course, through the winter months, uh, and least expensive is just to get, you know, some common ryegrass and put it out, but it's still too hot at this point. Again, I'd use some molasses, some Medina plus something like that and get that soil softened up and ready for your seed. But when you put seed out, somebody's going to have to water it if we're going to get it green and growing. Okay. Uh, I'm just wondering if there's no an easy an easy fix for it or not. <laughs> as as one of my employees would say, yeah, pave it over and paint it green. That's what I heard Jerry tell somebody <laughs> at the nursery yesterday because they <laughs> they were saying that you don't want to have to mow it and didn't want to have to do anything to it. That was his response. Well, just pave it over and paint it green. But uh, no, there are no magic solutions, and don't be tempted by these people that sell plastic grass. I saw a no. yard done up in, uh, and this and it's very expensive. I mean, that stuff is very costly. But uh, I had a place up the road from me where they did that. And over the period of a year or so, they had lots of dust blow in. They had lots of seeds blow in. And this grass had weeds 18 inches tall growing in their plastic grass. So that, that's wow. not the solution. But now, uh, you know, realistically, some people will create a yard with uh, decayed granite, uh, you know, that sort of southwestern uh, U.S. look. They do a lot in uh, New Mexico, Arizona, places like that. Uh, you're still going to have, uh, you know, a few weeds come up that have to be taken care of, but uh, it may be that you opt to go, and, and I'm not a fan of uh, rocks per se, but decayed granite can be an attractive thing on the surface of the ground. Different mulches can be used. There are alternatives to having plants that have to have water, but uh, nothing is totally maintenance-free. But uh, I'm thinking there are a couple of, quote, modern houses around the corner uh, from our nursery where they have done this. They've just got a decayed granite yard, and they have some yuccas and some uh, desert-type plants. I mean, these are beyond just zero escape. These are true 
uh, xeric desert plants. But uh, that's always an option to look at. But uh, no. if it's green and growing, it's going to have to have water. And that's uh, I don't want you to waste a bunch of money planting something that's just going to die because it doesn't get taken care of. I understand. I appreciate the uh, offer and the ideas. You have a great day, sir. You do the same. I appreciate the call this morning, Glenn. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Uh Bye. All right. Back to the phone lines. Jeff, Charlene, and Mike. And that one open line. Grab it if you like. While I say good morning, Mike. Or good morning, Jeff. (laughs) Good morning, Mike. Good morning, sir. I got, I believe it's a Lila avocado. Yes, uh uh-huh. Okay, uh, I planted it this spring, and uh, the deer had taken the leaves, some of the leaves off, but it, it came back like in the last month. It's okay. got several leaves, yeah. but they just started uh, like curling in. Mm-hmm. So why are the leaves like curling in? Like Probably because it's 105 degrees, and we've had a few windy days. And um, it's just, it's still the young tree. The bark is still fairly smooth. Uh, By the way, you probably will have to give it a little bit of winter protection this winter. By this time next year, it will be much, uh, you know, better developed. It'll have a more of a rough bark on it and it will be hardier. But um, what you're describing sounds like August to me. I don't think it's uh, a, a big problem. Remember that with Lila, like with all of your uh, the Mexican cold hardy avocados, you want to water them super thoroughly when you water them, but then you want to let that soil get dry about an inch deep before you water again. But uh, that just sounds like heat and wind to me. Yeah, I just take the hose and set it out there and turn it on, you know, fairly slow so it's not squirting out. Sure. And I just leave it there for several hours. And how and o- how it. often do you do this? Uh, twice a week. Okay, that should be about right. But make it a point, whenever you go out to turn that hose on, feel the soil first. Be sure that upper inch or soil of soil, inch or so of soil has dried and um, uh, you're, you're doing it properly. I think you're going to see a lot more normal leaf development when, uh, when it does cool off a little bit, which fortunately it looks like it may be starting to do. Yeah, it's a little bit cooler here this morning after the rain last night. So <laughs> Lucky you with the rain <laughs> under yeah, the right cloud. Yeah, we got some rain. It came down pretty good. Good. And I got a Myers lemon. Uh-huh. Okay, now on those bottom branches, can those be pruned off so they're not so low to the ground, or I planted it at the same time? Well, you certainly can, but now keep in mind that the most productive citrus is like a big bush, not like a tree. So every time you trim it, you're going to be sacrificing some lemons, but it's certainly easier to work around and doesn't take up as much room if you grow it as a tree rather than as a bush. And, of course, if you ever have anything come off below the graft point, that should be pruned off immediately. But uh, you're just changing the shape of the tree. It's going to grow fine however you do it. But, like I say, you're sacrificing some lemons every time you take branches off. Well, well, some of them are, like, laying down towards the on the ground, so I didn't know to keep bugs off of it. Well, again, that's just uh, Mother Nature doing her thing, so to speak. But uh, okay. uh, you're not going to make the tree more healthy or less healthy by taking those limbs off. Now, 
trees do love having some lower limbs because it shades the ground and keeps it cooler, but you can compensate for taking the leaves off by putting an inch or two of mulch over that area, which would always be a good idea. Oh, yeah. I already did it. Did the little ring inside and got <laughs> about three foot around it. I already well, that. Sounds like you're ready for a good fall. Hopefully you'll have abundant blooms uh, late winter and abundant fruit next year. All righty. Well, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for the call this morning. <laughs> All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, let's see. Next up is going to be, first of all, Charlene, and then Mike. Good morning, Charlene. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, yes, I was calling about uh, about a year, a year and a half ago. I had a hackberry tree cut down. The stump is still there. Okay. And uh, since then, I guess with the beginning of this year, all these what I call mini hackberries have been popping up all near that and where the stump is surrounding it, and they got... I guess about maybe three feet high the, near the stump, but the other ones are smaller, and we've been mowing them down. But sure. I was wondering, my question is, is there anything I can put on those where they're just popping up everywhere to stop them from growing any taller or something? Well, for the time being, a lot of those are probably coming off the roots, mm-hmm. and when that stump is totally dead and rotten, those will gradually die out. And um, mowing is the easiest thing. I fight some of that because I fight hackberries all the time around my garden. And I use a grubbing hoe. I just go out and chop and, you know, kind of chop them off at ground level and try to mess up those roots as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I would l- really suggest one of the things you'll want to work on doing is uh, getting that stump to rot more quickly. And the best way to do that is to get someone to drill a bunch of holes. Just, you know, take your old cordless carpenter's drill, put about a half inch or five-eighths inch uh, spade bit on there, and drill as deeply down into that stump as you can. Put a bunch of holes in the stump. Mm -hmm. And then at a nursery, you can get something called stump remover. It's just potassium nitrate. Uh, you go to analytical scientific, you might even, if you know anybody that processes meat, uh, potassium nitrate is a fairly common material and you simply fill those holes that you've drilled into the stump. The potassium nitrate is not a poison or anything else, but it reacts with the wood fiber, the cellulose, and it first of all softens it but it also makes it burn more easily. And with a soft-wooded tree like a hackberry, Mm -hmm. generally you drill your holes, you put your potassium nitrate in, give it about three months or so, and then just put a handful of charcoal briquettes on top and light. And it doesn't flame up or make a big fire or anything like that, but it just smolders, smolders all the way down into the ground, which destroys the stump and kills those roots that are coming off the base of the stump. And when you do that, you tend to have many fewer problems with that re-sprouting. Mm-hmm. Now, the other option, which will cost you 50 to $100, is find somebody with what they call a stump grinder. My mm-hmm. friend Kelly up in, uh, uh, used to be an R&R tractor um, up there on uh, I-10. Uh, I know this is what he does in his spare time. He has a stump grinder, and it's a big machine that just sits down on top of the stump and just literally chews it up about six inches down into the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is the way that you, you know, you literally do it overnight. But uh, it's, you know, it's not really a do-it-yourself job. You need a, you need a big, strong, football-looking guy 
to to ha- that has one of those machines to do the stump grinding. But uh, that's the other option. Most folks who don't want to, who are not in that much of a hurry, just drilling and using the potassium nitrate, the stump remover, this will get it uh, pretty quickly. Now, really hardwood like an oak stump or something like that, it takes longer. But hackberry is actually fairly soft wood, and it works fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, potassium nitrate is what is is what is in the um, stump remover. Yeah, yeah, okay. stump removers, potassium nitrate. You used to be able to buy saw, uh, ni- potassium nitrate at every drugstore in the world, and uh, it's what they call saltpeter, S-A-L-T-P-E-T-E-R. Yes. And uh, used for many agricultural purposes, but uh, saltpeter is one of the components of gunpowder, and in our world today where everybody is so concerned with someone misusing products it's gotten very hard to buy it under the name of saltpeter but uh it's still a little bit more dilute form of what you have in your stump remover and uh it just like say it turns the wood to nitrocellulose and that makes it really easy to either burn or chop out mm-hmm. well, I, was, I, was, I was just wondering uh why is why isn't the uh, stump removal taken down you know when the tree is cut down i mean why don't why why that's not part of taking the tree down I would well that depends on the deal you make with the guy that takes the tree down okay. many many arborists many people you know they're they're true arborists and then they're what i call hack whack and stack uh mm-hmm. tree trimmers and removers and many of the more professional ones which sometimes means a little bit more expensive ones mm-hmm. because they're going to have insurance they're going to have more expensive than the guy that just has a pickup and a chainsaw but mm-hmm. uh it, you can make a deal with many of the guys that do tree work to have oh. the stump ground out as well but oh. you know it's like uh, your mechanic may change the oil but he's not going to rotate the tires unless you tell him to mm-hmm. so okay. it's just that's that's just the deal you made to get rid of the tree you you okay. didn't include the stump grinding but it is frequently done but like i say it like everything else takes more time and adds to the expense of getting it done but uh uh, <laughs> there are a lot of guys out there cutting down trees that really don't know what they're doing. And my my advice to everyone is always be sure at the very minimum, anybody that you let come on your property to trim on your trees, be sure they have insurance. Yeah, yes, okay. I know the last arborist, you said he was an arborist. He was here. He showed me his insurance. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> always a good policy because mm-hmm. uh, in this crazy world we live on, somebody comes on your property falls out of your tree somehow it's your fault that they Mm -hmm. fell out of the tree and they turn around and sue you and uh, we don't need to get into the politics of uh, all the problems there i'll let uh, sean (laughs) and uh, and trey ware and uh, even jack ricardi i'll let them handle that and i'll stick to plants okay well i thank you very much bob i enjoy your show i've learned so much it's always a pleasure being here for you charlene you have a good Happy, safe Labor Day, and Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you, sir? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Yes, wonderful. We're looking forward to Labor Day like I am, I imagine. Oh, yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> I had two quick questions for you. Um, probably the easiest one is the uh, pine borers and my zucchini. I wish that were an easy question. Um, the, the squash vine borers... Some people, they, they make a pheromone trap. I have never had much luck uh, with anything actually repelling that moth that comes in and lays the egg. 
what I do on my squash, um, you know, I don't, I, I, being an old biologist, I've given plenty of shots in my life, and I simply take a hypodermic syringe, I fill it with uh, the BT uh, that kills the borers, and I actually inject it into the stem. Zucchini's a little bit more solid stem. You know, the borers always seem to get in within the first uh, four or five inches of the stem, and I just go and make, you know, two little or three little injection points along there and actually put some BT into the stem, which kills the borers before they can get started. Now, on the crook neck and the straight neck on the yellow squash, that stem is almost hollow, and I can generally just, you know, poke it one place and uh, squirt a good deal of it in there. And that, for me, has stopped the vine borers 100%. Now, if you're not comfortable with a really sharp syringe, you can get one of these uh, oh, things they use to inject turkeys and chickens and things like that before you throw them on the grill. You can certainly use something like that. But I just, you know, I just use a, a fairly big diameter, fairly large gauge needle like your veterinarian or your doctor would use for penicillin. I just put the BT in the end of the stem and no more vine borer. Okay, I'm going to try that. And uh, I do it when the plants are, when that vine is maybe 12, 15 inches long. Don't wait too long because I don't know what kind of sensors those, uh, that little moth. It looks more like a wasp than a moth, but if you've ever seen the picture of it, you know exactly what you're looking at. They seem to show up in my garden about the time the squash gets to be, you know, a foot and a half long or so. So I try to catch it when it's about a foot long. And like I say, I'll always inject it somewhere in that first four or five inches of stem. And that really does a good job of stopping them. I make the BT a little more concentrated. Um, I'm usually making probably a cup of solution at a time. And I'll put about a teaspoon of BT in. It's much stronger than they recommend when you're just spraying for caterpillar damage. But uh, I, I think it does a better job at controlling the vine borers. Okay, I'll give that a shot. Should I do that in the evening? or? I didn't really make any difference. It's certainly more comfortable to do it early morning or evening, but uh, you do it when it fits your schedule. Any time today. <laughs> I think at this point I'd wait till evening. We've we've already missed the cool part of the morning, so uh, this evening would be a, it'd be a good time. Uh, what's that other question? The other question is, my girlfriend and I took a trip down to Big Bend, and we saw this tree. We identified it. It's more like a shrub, I guess, a desert willow. Yeah. We got some seeds. How can I grow those? Or will they even grow in the Bernie area? Oh, they'll grow fine in the Bernie area. But let me tell you that there is a much, much improved variety of desert willow. I, I spent parts of three summers working in the Black Cap Wildlife Management area adjacent to Big Bend, and I've become very experienced with a lot of the plants out there. There is a variety of desert willow, which is much darker purple, makes a much prettier tree, and it's a variety called Bubba. Uh, Paul Cox came up with that name years ago at the San Antonio Botanical Garden where they developed this improved form. And many nurseries, you can actually buy a Bubba Desert Willow for a few dollars, and that, that you know, it gives you a better tree without the problem of trying to germinate the seeds. If I were going to germinate the seeds, I wouldn't do it directly in the ground because probably one out of a hundred seed actually sprouts and grows, but I would start you know, just with a uh, a tray or a big shallow pot, I'd plant the seed. I buried about half an inch deep. 
Uh, I would soak that seed either in liquid seaweed or in a little bit of garret juice for a few minutes before you plant it. And you'll probably have a good 50% germination on it, and uh, they will certainly grow. But uh, did you see the plants in bloom? Did you just see the plant itself? Excuse me. Yeah, we saw we saw them in bloom. Yeah, uh, if it look around San Antonio, uh, in fact, you may even go down to the botanical garden and compare what you saw in Big Bend with this variety called Bubba, because Bubba is really a much darker uh, flower, much prettier flower. Now, desert willow, as you probably noticed, is kind of a scraggly plant, and Bubba's not quite as scraggly as the ones you saw in Big Bend. But these trees are still not a thing of beauty, except when they're in flower. So don't plan on it being a big shade tree. Don't make it the focal point of your landscape because they're going to always look always look a little rough through a lot of the years. But they kind of make up for it with their beautiful flowers. So anyway, long answer to a short question, but now you know a little bit more about Desert Willow. Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering if they would even grow in this area. Oh, yeah, they yeah, they grow beautifully. Uh, they they need they need soil that drains well. Uh, they're not going to grow in in pure caliche, but uh, depending on how good or bad your soil is, you can always create a little berm or a little uh, raised bed or something like that to get them started. I'd say the average life is probably thirty to fifty years, so they're going to be with you a while. Yeah, well, I appreciate all the information. That's they're, they're just an interesting, pretty plant, but. Unfortunately, a lot of people go by a picture they saw, and they saw a beautiful plant in full bloom, and then they're asking me what's wrong when their plant always looks like it's about half dead. And I tell them, well, you're seeing the normal desert willow. It's it's just, you know, it's it's kind of, it's just not a super pretty plant, but the flowers sure do make up for it, and it is an extraordinarily hardy plant. Now, you're going to have to water to get it established, but once it's really established and growing, uh, very little you have to do to keep that plant growing in the Bernie area. All righty. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Good to talk to you, Mike. Thank you, sir. Yeah, Good uh-huh. to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, bye. All right. Uh, let's see. Next up is Raul. Good morning, Raul. Morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. Really appreciate your show. Thank it's you for it. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. Um, the reason I'm calling is we're, uh, I have a combination of uh, St. Augustine grass and turf grass. St. Uh, Augustine turf grass just refers to grass that's grown as a lawn. That's not a specific type of grass. Could it be Bermuda? Oh, well, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Bermuda. Uh, okay. St. Augustine and Bermuda. Yes, sir. Okay. So uh, we have um, uh, mostly Bermuda in the front yard mm-hmm. and then um, mostly St. Augustine in the back. But we're struggling with trying to keep it alive with, with the with the summer heat. Right. So I was trying to get some guidance on, like, how long we should water it. Like, when will it go dormant? Like, when should we start uh, feeding it? Excellent so questions. Just general yeah. direction. Excellent questions. Um, the what in in uh, they're they're both good strong grasses. In moist conditions, St. Augustine is always going to dominate. In dry conditions, Bermuda is always going to dominate. Uh, Bermuda will not grow well in the shade, so chances are your backyard's a little bit shadier, and that's why your St. Augustine is doing well there. The differences are if you stop watering, 
uh, St. Augustine dies. If you stop watering Bermuda, it turns brown and then it greens up again when it gets water or gets rain or whatever else. So you need to be watering uh, once a week. You need to be watering enough to put down an inch of water and uh, whether you use a sprinkler on the end of the hose, whether you have an automatic sprinkler system or whatever, put out some little shallow containers like an empty cat food can or just a, a you know a straight-sided container of any sort and time how long it takes to get an inch of water out of that sprinkler, whether, again, whether it's a hose end or whether it's an automatic system. Uh, and that is how long you need to have the sprinkler run each time it runs. Typically, it's about an hour at a time. Uh, we try to put down between an inch and an inch and a half of water per week uh, on both St. Augustine and Bermuda. And unfortunately, it gets expensive. Someday you may want to put it in a rainwater catchment system so you have basically free water that you can use on your on your landscape. But um, if it gets to the point that it simply gets too burdensome and expensive to run that sprinkler system every week, Keep watering the St. Augustine, but you can stop watering the Bermuda. The Bermuda will turn brown, but it will not die, and it will come back out, um, you know, when we get into a rainier period. But St. Augustine, if you can keep it alive, you're going to have to keep watering. Now, as far as fertilizing, I always recommend an organic fertilizer, whether it's Medina, Nature's Creation, Maestro Grow, Espoma. There are a bunch of different good organic fertilizers out there. Uh, doing it twice a year. Uh, it will keep your grass good and healthy. If you want thicker, lusher grass, you can do it up to four times a year. Uh, the nice thing about organic fertilizers, they do not burn. They do not have to be watered in. Uh, you just put them on when it's convenient, and then they get watered in at your next watering. But uh, we do that literally 365 days a year. I tell people that are just really trying to get thick grass and to get grass really well established, just do it. Early spring, early summer, every fall, early winter. If you're going to fertilize twice a year, do it once in the spring and once in the fall. If you can do it once a year, the fall fertilizing, which we normally do sometime September, October, November, the fall fertilizing is the single most important fertilizing of the year because it helps the grass get through the winter months. And uh, then second most important would be your spring fertilizing. And I think the last question you ask uh, about going dormant, uh, Bermuda grass will go dormant for the winter the first time we get a heavy frost, the first time we really get down close to freezing. St. Augustine in San Antonio typically stays green all winter unless we have an exceptionally cold winter. But I remember probably two or th out of three winters, St. Augustine never really totally browns out. But uh, if we have a really hard freeze, that's when it will turn brown and it will come back out the next spring. But Bermuda grass virtually always browns out, and that happens with our first heavy frost. Okay, on the uh, Bermuda and the front yard, it's, a lot of it's brown and yellow. Uh -huh. So what should I do for that right now? Water. I mean, okay, so if you look at my yard, it but, is totally brown. But an area around my greenhouse where just for fire protection as much as anything else, I decided I want to have some greener grass there. So about two weeks ago, I watered the section around my greenhouse only, and now it's a beautiful green lawn. So um, your, your yard's going to continue to look this way until we get a good rain. If you want to green it up, just start putting that one inch of water a week on, and you'll have a green lawn in about 10 to 14 days. 
Okay, uh, do you have one last question? Is, uh, I would like to add some compost to thicken the lawn. So mm-hmm. is that is that uh, recommended? That's a very good practice, but it's too hot to do it right now. Uh, after the weather cools down, typically middle October or later, uh, best time to put down compost is, is most years. It's going to be any time from the middle of October up until about the middle of April. So you do it when you have the energy and it fits the budget. Okay, that'll be good. That's where uh, that we'll do that then. That's a, sounds like a good plan. And you call me okay, anytime well, you have questions. questions. I'm always here to help you. Or call me whenever you need thank me. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Okay, thank you. You have a good day. Thank you too. You. Bye. All right, here we are back to gardening again. It's uh, Jane and Mike and Irma and Roy. And uh, Jane's up first. Good morning, Jane. Hi, Bob. Hi there. I live in the northwest part of San Antonio. Okay. And I, I actually live in the historic meander of Hebner Creek. Okay. And I have been doing uh, organic gardening for since 1983 when I first moved in here. Proud of you. Thank you. And you've been a big help, and I appreciate that. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. So I have big trees that existed here, plus I have a chinkapin that I planted and a cedar elm that I planted. Mm-hmm. And I used to actually work, volunteer out down there at the botanical gardens. And over time, I got me some really nice, good specimen plants. Oh, very like good. A pink saniso, a green rose, a swacei agarita, a rice acacia. <laughs> One of the many benefits of volunteering at the botanical garden. Exactly. So I got all these real nice plants. And I've got my own ground covers, the native grasses and forbs. So the good news is I got all these good things. The challenging news is everything has grown real, real well because I've always done the soil amending. Mm -hmm. All right. So now I'm to a point where I've got to simplify. So I want to keep all my good stuff, but I want to improve the soil while also simplifying things. Okay. So my questions for you have to do with this whole idea of improving the soil. Mm-hmm. Now, I just heard you say that best time to put on compost is mid-October to mid-April, so I got that idea. Okay. And I've heard you talk about dry molasses and lava sand. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, would it be best to do these things individually, or should I mix it all together and broadcast it all at one time? Well... I, you can do them pretty much at the same time, but I'm never going to like mix fertilizer and lava sand because lava sand's heavier and it's going to sink to the bottom of the spreader and it's not going to go out evenly. But you can, you know, do one and do the next five minutes later and do the next five minutes after that. The single most important thing that you're going to do to build your soil and to improve your soil is just don't do any of the bad stuff. Most people really destroy their soil, putting out these synthetic chemical fertilizers, putting out the weed killers, putting out all the crud that they buy at the box stores and things like that. And if you simply stop doing, or in your case, you've never done the bad stuff, your soil is going to gradually get better naturally because you've got the good bacteria in the soil Uh, You've got the things that build organic material, bacteria and fungi primarily, and you're not messing with them. So uh, you're doing what Mother Nature has done for thousands, tens of thousands of years. So um, as the doctors say, first do no harm. Beyond that, 
what you do is you feed the microbes, you bring in more microbes if you need them, and you feed them with things like molasses, you feed them with organic fertilizers. The lava sand helps hold moisture longer, and of course all things, even those things you can't see, require moisture to stay healthy and reproduce. So um, you, you can literally do as much or as little as you want to. The more you do, the faster your soil improves. But so long as you're not using, you know, all those chemical fertilizers and uh, we, everybody knows what they are. We don't have to call them by name. But your soil's going to naturally get better just by not doing anything bad. So it's just weighing how much time you have to improve and how much money you have to spend on improvements and then going from there, I think fertilizing once or twice a year is very important. That would be the top of my list. Uh, putting out something that stimulates microbes like uh, dry molasses or liquid molasses or Medina Plus, Medina Soil Activator, those things are inexpensive and also a very good idea. Compost is a wonderful idea, but it's moderately expensive and it's a lot of work to spread if you have a very big area. So um you know you're you're making progress uh you just have to decide whether you want to do it at 30 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour and it just takes a little more time and a little more money to do it at 70 miles an hour so you're you're doing everything right now it just depends on whether you want to up your game or not realizing this is going to take more time and more money to do it well i tell you what i have not been i just will not put potable water mm-hmm. on my yard till i'm absolutely forced Sure. And I do have me some fine rainwater catchment tanks, but you know, I live in a neighborhood and about the biggest tank I could conveniently put in this area was about 150 gallons. Okay. So I got two of those and I'm going to add a third one of those, but I do have a pretty good sized lot. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, you know, I've seen them great big cracks like everybody else has. Yeah. So that's where I started thinking, well, you know, maybe I better put on some compost or something to, you know, to, to kind of fill in some of that area. But maybe I should just start with the dry molasses. I, that's what I would do. And on your beds, I would, you know, go to the city or go to our Kendall County brush site. Uh, they're overflowing with uh material that they basically give away they may charge you a small loading charge i know in uh kendall county we've been giving it away because we've just been overstocked on it but uh the the free mulch that you get is uh it's not as good as something that already has a compost blended with it and other things but uh, again it's what mother nature's done and you're getting a real good product and spending no money at doing it so um you know, anything you can do like that's going to help. Uh, it's some time when you're in the southeast portion of San Antonio, if you're going to go over to Phoenix or somewhere like that, stop by and visit Tank Depot and look at their tanks because they have tanks that don't even look like rainwater tanks. And if you have a big lot, you could probably collect substantially more than 300 gallons of rainwater. But uh, uh, <laughs> just go by and look at some things that you would swear that, oh, that's not a water tank, but it really is. But uh, you might look at seeing uh, there may be some ways that you could increase um, the amount of rainwater you can store because, you know, even a small home is going to collect thousands of gallons of water over the season. So it might be something else you can take a look at and uh, help yourself have a little bit uh, more water that you use at your discretion. Okay, well, 
Now let's go back to that dry molasses. Uh-huh. How would you broadcast that? You can either just scatter it out by hand or you can use an ordinary broadcast fertilizer spreader. Okay, and I can do that at a rate of how many, like what's the, how, how deep do I want to go or how many pounds per square foot do I well, want to Well, it figures out to about 400 pounds per acre, which means that 40 or 50 pound bag is going to do a couple of thousand square feet. Okay. And be sure now that you either buy it under the Nature's Guide or Nature's Creation label because they have a dry molasses. It does not clump or get hard. A lot of the dry molasses that you may buy at the feed store, if you put it out immediately, it's good. But if it sits around for very long, it turns into a brick that you could build a home out of. Okay. So Nature's Guide or Nature's Creation for that broadcasting of the right. dry molasses. Yeah. Okay. And then... Um, how do you broadcast the lava sand? Uh, same way you can do it. I just scatter it out by hand, but you can put that out with a broadcast fertilizer spreader. It's, it's pretty heavy, so you're only going to fill your spreader about half full at a time, but uh, whatever whatever's convenient for you. Okay. I, yeah, I tend uh-huh. to use more lava sand in my beds than I do in my lawn just because I'd be buying it by the ton rather than by the bag if I was doing everything. Okay. Now, on that uh, molasses and lava sand, should I water that in right after I put it on, or can that sit there and we wait and see when it's going to start raining again? It can sit there as long as it needs to sit there. It does not burn or cause any problems. Man, that's great. Well, you're going to save me some time and money on that compost because I'm going to do those other things first. <laughs> well, do that, and, and uh, you could actually, again, if you want a lot of compost in your patients, you go out and get that free mulch, Make yourself a big compost pile and put your mulch into your compost pile, and a year or two later, you've got compost that cost you very little. So there are a lot of different shortcuts. Uh, you know, for me, the time factor is what is uh, my limiting factor. Golly, I'd have so many things I could get done if I just had more time to do them. I just do too many things in this world, but, you know, that's just a, a life choice of mine. Uh, Jane, it's always a pleasure to talk. You keep me posted on your progress. Okay, thank you, Bob. You're sure welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Oh, can't complain. That's a good way I to start know. the day. That's right. I live out in the Kerrville area, out uh-huh. in the country, and I have an ant problem. What kind of ants? Uh, well, I know they're not fire ants. They're a little bigger than, I guess, the sugar ants. They're not in the house. Okay. We've got a one-acre area that I keep mowed, and, and, of course, we watch the deer and the foxes and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not real big mounds. They're sometimes just little bitty two or three, four inches diameter. Uh, they don't sting. Okay. Um, they just get everywhere. And, okay. of course, you know, I don't want to use any chemicals, number one, and I definitely don't want anything that can hurt the deer right. or the other wildlife. Uh, and so I'm hoping you have a suggestion. Well, you know, my my first thought is why worry about them? Um, because there there are literally hundreds of varieties of ants. We were looking at some ants at the nursery yesterday. Somebody brought in, and there must be two, three, four hundred different species of ants across the hill country, and they all serve you know one purpose or another. We always target things like fire ants. 
Uh, but even those things, they control ticks. They do some good things out there. A lot of your smaller ants are a very important part of the food chain. They get eaten by lizards, by horned toads, by birds. And so if they're not causing a problem, my tendency would be to ignore them. Now, if you, for whatever reason, want to kill them out, spinosad is probably the safest. I mean, spinosad is derived from a natural soil bacteria, um, and it unfortunately is, it can be hard on beneficials, and you don't want to spray it out where your bees are going to come in heavy contact with it. A little bit of it's not bad, but a lot of it would be damaging uh, to bee populations and also to some of the beneficials. But it is probably one of the best ant killers as well as one of the best fly killers out there. But I think real hard about you know again what you're what you're describing to me is a little bit of a nuisance which is a you know the the negative side of looking at it but again like i say those ants are doing something in nature as well as serving a food for a lot of the things that you probably want to protect obviously the deer are not going to eat them but um, it's a long food chain and and a lot of the smaller reptiles and things like that and even some of the birds uh, consider those a very important food source. So uh, I think real hard about whether they're really worth going after or not. One of the issues is we have a huge deck that mm-hmm. we normally sit in the evenings or mornings and, and watch a deer. And, okay. of course, they the ants have a tendency to come up all over this place. So oh, sure. They're all over the place. They're on your legs. Yeah. Uh, they don't sting. And so it's primarily getting them out of, out of keeping them off that deck. Well, keeping them off that deck, you can either, um, you can sprinkle some diatomaceous earth around, which will stop them so long as it stays dry, or you can spray the base of the deck and spray the area all around the deck with spinosad. You'll probably buy it under a name like Captain Jack's Dead Bug. Who knows where they come up with these names? But uh, that's one of uh, your names that you'll find spinosad under. Or you can actually use the spinosad soap, which is uh, from a company called uh, Natural Guard. But uh, spinosad and DE are going to be total controls, but I would just concentrate them around your deck and wouldn't worry about it on your acreage. Perfect. I will do that then. And uh, uh, let, me tell you, let me tell you one other option, too. Uh, there is a product which is called orange oil. I think Medina Package is the best in the industry. But orange oil is a natural product uh, made, it's actually squeezed out of citrus peel. And orange oil is a great ant killer. And uh, it has a lot of other uses as well. It's one of the best cleaners in the world. Uh, you can mix it with vinegar and make a weed killer out of it. It has no residual value. Spinosad has a little bit of residual value, and the DE will continue to work as long as it stays dry. But if you are out there and you say, my gosh, we have a party in an hour and I've got 10,000 ants on this deck, get a little bit of uh, orange oil, mix it about two tablespoons per gallon, and 10 seconds later the ants will be dead. Huh. Well, that's good to know. It's what I'm here for, and I appreciate the call, Mike. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Do the same. All right. uh, Next up is Irma. Good morning, Irma. Let's see. Let's do that one more time. Uh, good morning, Irma. Yes. How can I help today? My, my question is, I had two plants, and it looks like a verdolagas. Okay. Does uh, that plant is good to eat? Um, 
I it's <laughs> that would be hard to say without seeing. Describe it to me. What exactly does it look like? Well, there's uh, like vines, but uh, they have a yellow, small yellow flowers. Uh huh. And uh, they grow pretty good in a plant. Okay. And they like, make a little uh, fruit that's just an inch or two in diameter? Uh, yes, uh-huh. That is, it's some type of gourd. It wouldn't hurt you to eat it, but it certainly is not going to taste good. Uh, it's related to squash. It's related to cucumbers. But most of them have a pretty bitter flavor, so I don't think you would want to eat it. It's not dangerous or anything like that, but you'd have to be awfully hungry <laughs> to want to eat it. I guess that's the way I best put it. You'd be you'd be starving before you'd really want to eat that stuff. Yes, because in Mexico they call them verdolagas, and they make it with pork. Well, they... It's a little sour. Yeah. Um, the blooms are, you know, are just fine, and... Uh, um, yeah, my sister lives in Saltillo, and uh, it's one of their favorite things, the different blooms from all of the gourds and squash and things like that. So, yes, you can certainly use the flowers, but the gourd that it makes itself is not going to be very tasty. The flower is not uh, to eat. There's only the leaves. Right. Now, I don't know about the leaves. I'm, uh, they're kind of rough. They're kind of spiny. I don't think they're real toxic but uh they don't really taste good judging by the fact that the deer don't eat them and the cows don't eat them but i don't think there's anything harmful about them but uh uh, i'm not the greatest chef in the world so i couldn't tell you whether they have any culinary uses but i don't think there's anything that's poisonous about them or anything i think they're just kind of bitter don't taste very good Okay, well, I'm going to try and see and I let you know. A little bit at a time, and uh, let me know Let me know what you come up with to do with them. Okay, because I'm very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you enjoy, Irma, and you. I'll, I'll do a little research, too, and see what we can find out. Okay, thank you. Have You're, a good day. You do the same. Thank you. All right, uh, let's see. Next up is going to be Roy. Good morning, Roy. Good morning. Okay, you need to get on your phone and off your speaker phone. I can barely, barely hear you, Roy. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, okay, much better. I want to ask. I want to ask you: Should I buy a clear a roll of plastic or black a roll of plastic to cover some uh, some uh, some Bermuda grass? I don't want. I don't want to kill the sea no more. And should I, is it okay if I, if I cover it with like four or five inches of dirt? Um, you can certainly do that, but uh, if you want to pull the plastic up later, you know, it's, uh, it, it's totally up to you. One thing you want to do is, first of all, just water it down and then cover it. And it makes no difference whether you use black plastic or clear plastic, but wait about four to six weeks before you put your dirt on top of it. Because you want that sunlight to hit it, you want it to get very, very hot underneath the plastic, and that's going to kill out the Bermuda grass pretty effectively. So um, you'll smother it uh, eventually if you put the dirt straight on it, but if it pokes any tiny little holes or anything like that, then that Bermuda grass will come right up through it. So I put your plastic down, I'd, I'd water, I put the plastic down, and, and it works 
equally well whether you use clear or black plastic, but leave it down there for about four to six weeks so it kills 99% of the grass underneath it, and then put your dirt on top of it, and you should, uh, as long as you don't bring in weeds with your dirt, you should be totally clear there. Oh, okay, that's good. Okay, sir. Thank you very much. Well, you're sure welcome. I appreciate the call. Thank you, Roy. Okay, next up is going to be Phyllis. Good morning, Phyllis. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well. It's a very pleasant morning out there so far. So far, so good. Um, Let's talk roses, Bob. Okay. I want to know if you planted several rose bushes, how far apart would you need to plant them? The best time of year to plant them and what you need to do to your soil to prep them. Okay, so uh, how, when, and uh, how far apart in getting the soil ready. First of all, you're going to have to decide what kind of roses you want to grow because they're little miniature roses that grow 2 feet tall and 18 inches wide. There are medium-sized roses that grow 5 feet tall and 3 feet wide. And I've got a Lady Banks rose in my front yard that's 10 feet tall and 25 feet wide. So how you space them out will depend on your choice of, you know, what kind of roses you want to grow. So um, you will have to talk about specific roses in general. Let's say you're planting the knockout roses, which are very popular right now. You'd be planting them about three to four feet apart if you want a hedge. You'd be planting about five feet apart if you want individual, uh, to see individual bushes. So we're going to use that as a starting point. But if you decide to go with smaller roses closer together, decide to go with bigger roses, Belinda's Dream, things like that, you're going to spread them out a little bit more. You can... If I came into, um, say, Shades of Green, and there were specific roses that I would say, you guys would be able to tell me ha- about how far apart I would need to plant those, oh, absolutely. absolutely, and uh, the other big rose growers in this area. We grow or we offer mainly roses that are what we call own root roses or not grafted roses. If you want the fancy grafted roses, Fanic Nursery is the best place to go. And those guys are great. They can also tell you on on spacing and all. So let's talk next about when to do it. Um, You can literally plant them 365 days a year, but you're always going to find the best selection of roses in the spring. February, March are when the nurseries are going to have more different kinds of roses and have more roses available but you can you can plant them literally 365 days a year. There's never a bad time to plant a rose so long as you can keep it watered. And as far as soil preparation, you can grow roses in any soil that is relatively rich in organic material. Um, uh, the roses will not do well in pure caliche, but in any kind of darker soil. If you want to improve it, work some compost in. Um, after you've planted your roses, it's always good to put a layer of mulch on the surface to help keep more moisture in the soil and to help keep down weed growth. But um, soil preparation is is pretty minimal, but uh, adding some organic material, usually in the form of well-rotted compost, is always a good thing to do. But um, the other, you know, other questions to ask yourself for how much time you want to spend maintaining them, because 
you know, everybody's just in love with this series of roses they call knockouts. And they're pinks, they're reds, they're yellows, they're double red, double pink, lots of different ones. My experience with the knockout roses, as pretty as they are, they have to be watered three times as often as any other rose that I've ever grown in my life. So I would spend you know, a bit of time just looking at everything that's available and deciding what Phyllis really wants to have growing out there, deciding how big you want those bushes to get, deciding if you have a favorite color. Um, I wouldn't just go run out and buy a bunch of roses. I think, you know, to be successful long term, you're going to need to do a little bit of research, and uh, that way this will be something that you will enjoy for years and years to come. But um, does that help you? I know that doesn't answer every yes, question. Yes, helps but... me a lot. And um, I live here in San Antonio, but we have a place that we're building out in Louisiana. So uh-huh. this is going to be going in Louisiana. Well, now, welcome to uh, – uh, here's the thing about Louisiana. You're going to start with much better soil over there. Some compost would still be fairly good. But uh, north or south Louisiana? Central Louisiana, north of uh, Alexander, north of uh, Forest Hill. Okay. Well, you're in one of the best uh, places you could be. The headquarters of the American Rose Society are actually in Shreveport. So, really? <laughs> yes. Uh, but, so you have a lot of choices. The one thing that you will have in Louisiana that, that is more of a, not a limiting factor, but will affect your choices, uh, because you have higher humidity some varieties of roses are more susceptible to what we call balling, B-A-L-L-I-N-G, which is where the, the blooms just don't open very well. And the bigger, the more petals the rose uh, bloom has, the more of a problem this is going to be. So there are a handful of ri- roses that are not going to be as happy in Louisiana. But again, you'll find that out with your research. And it's a question we can always help answer for you. And if you get serious about it, you'll see on different rose varieties, they'll actually give you what you call the the petal count, how many individual petals there are in a rose bloom. And you're just going to want to stay away from the ones that just have a super high number. But central Louisiana is a wonderful place. Maybe not quite as good as Portland, Oregon, which is where the International Test Gardens are, but uh, American Rose Society wouldn't have put their headquarters in Louisiana if it weren't a pretty darn good place to grow roses. That's good to know. Now, would they need lots of sunshine? Yes, or ma'am. Not so much. Yes, no, uh, lots and lots of sun. Roses need virtually full sun to stay disease-free and to bloom well. Okay. Thank you so much, Bob. You helped me a lot. That's what I'm here for. I appreciate the call, and thank you. Okay. Bye. Goodbye. And Diana's first. Good morning, Diana. Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Uh, all righty. We live in the Hill Country in Bandera County. Okay. We have very rocky soil. <laughs> I don't live very far away from you in Kendall County, so I know. So you can relate. Right. So uh, seven years ago, when we bought the house, we planted 10 uh, live oak trees, and they were very small, like four foot tall, extremely, extremely small. Right. And eight out out of the ten have done beautifully. They're 12 to 15 feet tall. They're just fantastic. But two of them, we think, were kind of attacked by the deer and are just, even seven years later, they're only about three foot tall. They've got a lot of little branches on them, but they Mm -hmm. look like little bushes. Is there anything I can do to make them grow up? instead of staying stunted like they are? Well, that's a really good question. Um, 
I we have to figure out why they are studded to begin with, and if you're sure that they were beaten down, eaten down, or if they were studded by deer, then of course the you know what we have to do is just keep the deer away from them and increase our fertilizing and our water around those trees. But sometimes there is a problem with the tree before you get them. Sometimes the grower left them in a small pot for too long and you have a problem with girdling roots where the roots have sort of circled, wrapped around each other, uh, and maybe actually strangling the trunk of the tree. Uh, you can also have problems if the trees started out buried too deeply, maybe in the pot before you got them, or maybe when you planted them, they accidentally got planted too deeply. And if the root flare, where we see the trunks normally start to broaden out, if there is soil piled up above that point, that will very definitely stunt a tree and many times ultimately will kill it. So uh, I, guess, I guess we have three things to look at. If you think the problem might be partly being buried too deeply, then you pull that dirt back, you expose the root flare, and things you know get better immediately. Um, you do need to keep the deer away from them. In fact, you need to keep the deer away from all of your trees because even though there's not much of a chance that they're going to be chewing on the top of a 15-foot tree, when the bucks start rubbing the velvet off the antlers, when they start marking their territories for the rut, uh, they can destroy a tree just rubbing the bark off of it. So we've got to do some deer protection. If, you know, none of these things seem to help with your with your little compact trees over the winter months i would never do this in the heat but over the winter months um it might be a matter of having to dig them up examine the root systems cut out any circling or girdling roots and replant them and that's going to be my last option but there may be problems that you can't see because they're below ground level um i you might start by sometime during the cool weather taking your hose taking um you know a little uh, uh oh they used to use a hay hook things we used to drag bales of hay around with uh to actually pull the soil back try to get a look at the root system before you you know actually dig the whole thing up and see if you see roots wound together see if you see a big root that seems like it's circling the trunk because I, I worry that there may be something going on that we can't see that just fertilizer and water is not going to take care of. But, uh, yep. you know. Well, they've been consistently watered and fertilized all at the same time, so that's not the issue. Okay. So if I were to, to dig it up and I found that it was the roots were circling, is it a matter of just cutting away some of them and making them more, cutting away a lot of the roots? or You, you simply take, uh, it's like having a noose around your neck. Uh, you want to cut the root uh, so that it no longer strangles. In many cases, an arborist will use a wood chisel and will actually take out a section of the root. But I have to, in all honesty, tell you that it may just be better to replace those trees. And perhaps, yeah. And the thing about being in Bandera County, there is a lot of oak wilt in Bandera County. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not going to plant any more live oaks. Uh, I'm not going to plant it. Yeah, I'm not going to. But these were there, so yeah. uh, I want to try to sell them sure. as much as I can. So. Sure, but we're but going my, more with cedar elms recently. Yeah, cedar elms are oaks. are a good choice if you can find escarpment cherry. I've got beautiful escarpment cherry on my ranch. 
Uh, Burr oaks are an excellent oak for the area, and they are not troubled with oak wilt. Um, Lacey's oak, if you have any areas of deep soil. On my ranch, I've got a combination of uh, rocky hills with no soil and a couple of deeper you know, creek bed areas where I have deep soil, and the Lacey's oaks are absolutely gorgeous on my ranch, but I wouldn't recommend planting them in, you know, real rocky, caliche-type soil. So um, it would be nice to get a little diversity in that tree canopy. So uh, if you do decide to replace these trees, just use something other than live oaks. Okay. All right. Perfect. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Let me tell you one more thing, Diana. Um, Okay. Is there any live live oak, or I'm sorry, any oak wilt anywhere close by around you? Um, there is in our subdivision. I'm in the Broadgate subdivision, and it's kind of spotty, but yes, we do have it in the subdivision. Okay, well, let's try to make your oak trees immune to oak wilt, and we do okay. that by twice a year. We're going to treat them with uh, corn water tea. You just go to the feed store. You don't have to buy anything expensive, but just get plain old uh, whole ground cornmeal, uh, if you can't find that, you get corn chops. If you can't find that, you just get deer corn. But soak it uh, about one to two cups of cornmeal to a five-gallon bucket of water. Soak it for 12 to 24 hours, and then simply pour that liquid around the base of your oak trees. Do this about twice a year. The cornmeal is not the magic, but there is a beneficial fungus called trichoderma, which grows on the cornmeal. And trichoderma will both prevent oak wilt, and if it's not too far gone, it will actually cure oak wilt in these trees. And uh, so I, it's, you know, probably going to cost you $5 every six months to do this. But if you want to, I mean, you can have uh, oak wilt literally march down my neighbor's fence line and stopped when it got to my property. And uh, if it becomes a bigger problem in your neighborhood, I want your trees to survive and be beautiful. And, uh, okay, and, you, and you call that cornmeal tea, is and it was yeah. basically just... It's just the liquid. The again? Yeah, it's just the okay. liquid. You could accomplish the same thing putting cornmeal on the ground around the trees and watering, but then you've got right. the squirrels, the deer, the birds, everything else want to eat it, and you're putting uh-huh. down 20 pounds per tree. In this case, you're using like half a pound uh, to treat a tree, so it's less expensive. It's a little bit more work, but... Uh, um, you know, head over to the local bakery. They'll probably give you a bunch of those five-gallon plastic buckets and just do one bucket full per tree every six months, and oak wilt should never be an issue for you. Okay, and what was the ratio of cornmeal to water? One to two cups in a five-gallon bucket. Okay, one to two cups and five gallons. Okay, yep. perfect. I will definitely do that. And All you right. uh, have a great uh, Labor Day. Thank you for the call right, this thank morning. Thank you so much. And thank you, Bye-bye. Diana. Goodbye. And I say good morning to JT. What's going on, sir? Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning. It's, uh, not why I, it's not why I called, but I can vouch for what you were suggesting on the corn water tea for the oak wilt. Yes, I've, sir. Uh, had really good results following your recommendations on some several stands of it that we've had up here, and the new growth has come out looking really good. So, so happy to hear it. Glad uh, you're doing it. Keep keeping there. You know, what I called about is what about uh, I'm interested in putting out some uh, uh, some tea, uh, some uh, compost tea. Mm-hmm on acreage and am I wasting my time doing that in the draft do I need to wait for soil moisture or what's uh, what do I need to do on that that's a really good question too y'all guys you guys just asked really excellent questions here here's the deal 
of, of all the microbes, and we're looking at probably 20,000 different kinds of bacteria and 10,000 different kinds of beneficial fungus that you will get when you put out some good compost tea. About half of those microbes do not have a dormant or resting state. So when it gets real dry, they're just going to die and you've lost them. Um, so in that regard, very best would be wait until we have more moist conditions so that your microbes that you're getting out of your tea can spread more thoroughly through the soil. They can get deeper down in the soil where the soil doesn't dry out and, um, you know, and be there perpetually, so to speak. And to accomplish that, you would definitely need to wait until a wetter period. The other side of the story is that, okay, half of uh, 20,000 bacteria is 10,000 kinds. Half of 10,000 fungi is 5,000 kinds. So putting it out now, you're going to be inoculating the soil with a huge number of microbes that have a resting or a dormant phase. Um, So... (laughs) Ideally, wait. Uh, On the other hand, you're going to get lots of benefit from doing it now. Uh, If it were, you know, your yard, I would say definitely do it now. When you're looking at doing big acreage, it's just kind of up to you. If you want the optimum results uh, and it's not going to set you back to wait, you know, a month or two or three months or whenever we get back into a little bit more rain, it would probably be better to wait a little while. But, um, Uh, That's why I give you a long answer instead of a short answer. You're always going to get benefit, but the maximum benefit would be to wait until we've got a little more moisture in the soil. Okay, I'll do that. I just hope it's not the three months you just mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you and me both, but uh, I think we both lived in Texas long enough to uh, not try to predict the weather. I just laugh. I realize uh, it is a very serious situation but watching these forecasters with this hurricane, they don't have any friggin' idea of what that storm's going to do. And they're so busy, you know, c- trying to cover themselves and trying to talk about every possibility. It, it's just yeah. weather forecasting is not an exact art. And I wish these clowns are <laughs> quit pretending it is. Uh, my weather expert up in Kendall County who works for an environmental services company and I always say he's paid to be right, I looked at his forecast for August, and he said basically it's an unstable pattern. We're probably going to be very dry. We're going to be paying, praying for a tropical storm by the end of the month, but uh, there's always a chance that we could have some good localized rain, and guess what? That's exactly what has happened, but... Uh, I just I I just get very amused by these guys that speak as if they know everything exactly what was going to happen and then the total the reverse happens and uh so it's not an exact science. I hope it's not 3 months. I hope it's not 3 weeks, but we both know it might be. Well, what's he saying about the La Nina El Nino cycle? Well, that's a real interesting question because typically we cycle between El Nino and La Nina and he is saying that right now uh, we're moving into what they call the enso-neutral pattern, which is neither one nor the other. But he's saying there's about a 50-50 chance, rather than move into the dry cycle, which would be the typical thing, he's saying we may very well move back into the more moist cycle, and we're just going to have to watch the water temperatures and uh, and see which way it's headed. But he's... He says there's a good 50-50 chance that rather than cycle into a dry period, which would be the typical pattern, 
we may instead cycle back into another wet period, which is what we're certainly hoping for. All righty. Well, I sure appreciate everything you do, Bob, as does everyone. Hope you have a good weekend and happy day tomorrow. And you do the same, JT. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, let me know what you decide on the compost tea. Sound like I better do both. (laughs) I would do the most important areas, and then when we do get more moist, I'd redo everything. There you go. I appreciate it. Thanks again. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. uh, Next up is Kurt. Good morning, Kurt. Uh, good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I live um, in Comal County, north of uh, Canyon Lake. Okay. Uh, we planted a golden ball lead tree uh, about four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. It's 10 foot tall. Uh, it has six small uh, limbs coming off the main trunk, but it's very they're very, very close to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, half of the tree started dying. Um, turning brown, uh, the other side was uh, stayed green, and then now this side is turned uh, brown. Uh, I've scraped it with my thumb, and it's green mm-hmm. on the newest dying side, and it's uh, a real dark, I mean, woody on the one that st- side that started dying uh, earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not quite sure what's going on. It sounds to me, uh, are you watering it? Is this in your landscape where you're able to supplement the moisture? Yes, uh-huh. Um, it, you know, it, it's a root issue, and it's almost certainly a moisture issue, but it's hard to say whether it's too much or too little. How often do you water, and how um, long do you water when you water the tree? Uh, we trickle water for uh, an hour, um, and then um, and we do it about once a month. And how often? They say it's very low, um, a very low water. And we thought that originally, when it was started dying the first time, that it was because of all the moisture that we had gotten in uh, June and July. Yeah, I, I tell you. It, it is a low-water user at maturity because a uh, golden ball uh, tree, lead tree, can it's, it's a native tree, and it develops a very, very widespread root system when it is you know mature and well-established, and that's going to take three or four years. You need to be watering that tree at this point in this kind of dry weather at least once a week, and you probably need to be letting that water trickle for four or five hours instead of for an hour. Um, It's just simply not get enough water. If this tree were mature and established, yeah, once a month would be plenty, but it it takes several years to really establish that tree. And in the spring, it may have been suffering from staying too wet, but I can promise you right now the problems you're seeing with the second half of that tree are simply not getting the water it needs because those subsurface layers have gotten so dry. And, um, uh, I again, I would probably would add some Garrett juice. I might add a little bit of Super Thrive. want to do something to try to get those roots reestablished, those little root hairs established immediately. Um, and every chance you get, any time you are in the area of that tree, pick up your hose and spray up and down the trunk of the tree because where that the layer is still alive, it'll absorb a great deal of moisture directly through the bark, which is going to 
give it the best chance it has of surviving and coming back out. Probably not going to really put on many new leaves until next spring, but uh, uh, a tree that's been planted less than a year, man, watering it once a month in this kind of drought is a kiss of death. Well, it's, it's, we've had it in four or five years, and it's about 10 foot tall. Yeah, but so, it's... Uh, uh, so can I use a water spike, um, a watering spike to where I push it down into the ground and uh, trickle it there? If you push it very deeply, you're going to get below the root zone. Um, I think it's better to apply it on the surface. If you use one of these... Uh, root waterers as they call them don't put it down more than six inches and move it around to where you're doing it at least six or eight places around the tree all the latest research shows that the tree takes up the majority of the water within a few feet of the trunk we used to think it was all out under the drip line and that's where a lot of nutrient absorption takes place but the water uptake is is going to occur in a relatively small radius around the trunk so that's best where you concentrate. That's, that's where you do your best to concentrate the water in that area. But as uh, long as you don't go too deeply, yeah, one of those root waters is fine. But if you push it down the full 24 inches down, not that any of us can in most of our soils, <laughs> but if you could get it down that deep, you're a foot below most of the roots of the tree. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much. And a little mulch over the surface of the ground, not against the trunk, but out over you know, say from a foot out to five feet out from the trunk, uh, that's going to do a whole lot uh, to help keep the soil cooler. I mean, old Malcolm Beck, with some of his experiments, showed us that we can actually knock 30 to 40 degrees off the soil temperature in that upper couple of inches of soil, and that can make a real difference in how that uh, how the tree's root system does. So just, you know, basically ground up free native material is going to be great, but mulch it if you can, and that'll give it its best chance. I, I chip all of my cedars that I cut <laughs> down, and uh, and it, I've got mulch all over the property. Well, that's a very good thing. I do the same thing. What kind of chipper do you use? Uh, I use a 6-inch. Okay. Uh, the 12-inch just doesn't... Uh, um, I, I don't like the look of the 12 inch. Sure. So I, do, you, do you have a Vermeer or do you have a bandit chipper? Uh, the, I just go out and rent it. Oh, okay. Very good. I, I'm, we have a small bandit chipper and I'm actually thinking about getting a little bit bigger one. And I haven't decided between the two brands. I was just, I was going to ask your experience. My next, uh, I'll talk to a couple of my rental agencies and, uh, find out from them, which one they yeah, like. You won't, best. you won't get much information from me on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got lots of other knowledge, obviously. Good luck, and let me know how you do with your tree. Uh, thank you very much, Bob. Appreciate My pleasure, it. Kurt. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, Goodbye. Uh, bye-bye.